The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Stephen Baugh. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, if you want to follow along, or just listen. 2 Corinthians, the faculty's been working through 2 Corinthians in this chapel time on Thursdays. So I'm continuing that. I'll be reading from, for context purpose, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 6. We'll focus on chapter 4, 3 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. But in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ since the reading of the Lord's word. So when I was younger and had children in the home, we, Kathy and I had read a book about how you transform certain negative attributes in your children into positive ones. Now, I don't remember what those are, except for one of them. Probably the one that parents remember best is if you have a stubborn child, you should uh, see that as a positive attribute and transform it into being persevering. So stubbornness positively is perseverance, so it can be a good thing. Now, I I have no idea how you do that, and I'm not sure we did do that, but I remember reading about it anyway. but frankly, it's the one that stuck with me because I think that's the way I am. I kind of can be kind of stubborn in some ways. And uh, as a scholar, that definitely typifies my work. As uh, many of you know, 
uh, language does not come easily with me. So foreign languages are difficult for me to learn, and I, I just attribute uh, having some grasp of foreign languages through perseverance and stubbornness and working my brains out. Uh, I told you I've you know, worked three or four hours a day, every day in college on Greek. Uh, and so I get a little obsessive about it, frankly. Well, my, my colleagues uh, know that about me because uh, they often will roll their eyes whenever I talk to them because I'm always talking about the same thing until I figure it out. And lately it's been hyperbaton, and you all don't roll your eyes yet. I mean, <laughs> this is actually hopefully a devotional and edifying, but last year I gave a paper on hyperbaton in Hebrews. I'm writing an article right now on that for an academic journal. Uh, and this devotional is about hyperbaton. <laughs> so it's part of being stubborn. I want to figure it out and I want to see how it works and what it's up to. So it takes me a while uh, to figure it out and I just go after it. I'm dogged that way. Uh, I think this is why people don't invite me to parties because they don't, they don't want to hear about hyperbaton anymore because it's all I talk about. Um, and it's going to come up here. Now, hyperbaton is just uh, an issue of Greek word order. And if you don't know Greek, if you're you know, listen, not here in the chapel, you're listening to a, a tape of this thing, uh, hyperbaton is simply word order issues. English re uh, requires certain word order to communicate uh, meaning. But in Greek, you don't need to do that. And for example, in the a book of Hebrews, where hyperbaton is actually fairly frequent. Um, he says, for example, in Hebrews 9.15, if you were to follow the Greek word order, he says, the promise they receive, namely those who are called of the eternal inheritance. So you have this promise, and then three other words, of the eternal inheritance, which is the which is connected to promise. So we would have to move things around and say, those who are called receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You have to connect those words together by word order. What Hebrews does is he opens with promise to put focus on it, and then ends with the thing connected to it of the eternal inheritance. That's hyperbaton. It's simply moving things around in the Greek word order and, and uh, separating them for some purpose. The purpose is what I'm working on in my dogged pursuit of you know, Greek scholarship. Uh, and my uh, connection with 2 Corinthians in the passage that we just read in this hyperbaton came up innocently enough. Now, I was not reading about hyperbaton. I was actually reading a book on John, the Gospel of John, for my the purpose that I do teach the Gospel of John a little bit in a Gospels class, and I was just trying to keep up with newer scholarship. So I read a book written in 2016, and you know, just trying to keep up with uh, the field. Well, there was the word hyperbaton in this book, and it, and I was you know now I'm lost. I've got to pursue that, and it was on Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. Interestingly enough with the church father, Irenaeus. So you, you know, it's, it, it came up innocently enough, it's very interesting because Irenaeus is struggling with dualism in his day. And a particular form of dualism is, proposes that there's 
an evil God and a good God. You know, this takes various forms, but that's the, the kind of stuff he was dealing with. And you have this phrase as the way that the translation renders it that I read to you from the English Standard Version, the God of this world in verse 4. So this is chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world. Well, Irenaeus is, is struggling with people who see that as, yeah, see, that's this evil God who is equal with the good God. And there's this, there are two equal forces in creation, a good God and an evil God. Well, it gets really complicated from there, but Irenaeus was solving this problem by moving words around in Greek and saying, no, you should really separate, not say the God of this world, you should separate of this world from God and attach it to those, uh, the minds of unbelievers of this world. So you, you should read the verse, he says, as among whom God has blinded the minds of the unbelievers of this age. Now, the, you know, the translation says of this world, but it's of this age. It's another way to render that. So instead of the God of this age, it's unbelievers of this age, and it's the only God who is blinding the minds of unbelievers of this age. Now, if you look in Calvin's commentary on this verse, it's interesting, he doesn't mention Irenaeus, but he says that same interpretation was followed by John Chrysostom, Ambrose, and Augustine. So it was actually fairly common in the uh, earlier church to, to read Greek that way. And I should tell you that in the book of Hebrews, that kind of word order where you just you know, have these things uh, that connect to words that are pretty far away and all, all this happens, this is possible. So what Irenaeus is saying is actually quite possible in Greek. And it's not just the New Testament. This is just Greek. There's, there are other authors. Well, most Greek prose authors do this. It's actually a fairly common feature of Greek. So what Irenaeus is proposing is plausible. You shouldn't see this as a desperate move that really has no merit to it. It is actually plausible to read Greek this way. But it's interesting to hear Calvin on this, because he, here's what he says. He does not accept Irenaeus' position. He says, this is an example of what can happen in the heat of controversy. For if all these men had read Paul's words with a calm mind, it would never have occurred to them to twist them into a forced meaning in this way. So he doesn't think this is very plausible. Well, I don't think it's twisting it, and I don't think it's forced. Um, and frankly, I'm sympathetic to Irenaeus. It's, you know, the god of this age is kind of a difficult thing to say he's the god of this age. Because then you're talking about Satan as being god, or at least the god of this age. And it certainly is, for some people, a very troublesome phrase. I once was speaking at a conference. I think it was the last conference I spoke to because, you know, hyperbaton came up. Uh, <laughs> It didn't, actually. This was a long time ago, and I was speaking at this conference, 
And I mentioned this verse, and I said, the God of this world. And one of the participants in the conference, it was an audience member in the conference, just really got angry with me. You can't say that. You can't call Satan the God of this world. I said, I'm quoting Paul. I don't care. You can't say that. <laughs> it's just, it's just, uh, and it, th this person was not reconciled with me at all, really angry with me for saying that. And I said, I'm just quoting Paul. I don't care. You can't say that, uh, which I found. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I would hope at a Bible conference you could quote the Bible, but I, you know, it just seemed uh, that this was a real troublesome thing for people, and I became more sensitive to that, in a sense, and more careful in how you say this. But then you have Jesus calling Satan the ruler of this world three times in the Gospel of John. The ruler of this world is now cast out. He's talking about Satan. It's a very similar kind of statement and one to take seriously. Paul, for example, calls him the prince of the power of the air and says that those who are lost are dead in sin and transgression and, they, and the prince of the power of the air is effectively operating in them. This is Ephesians 2. So he calls him the ruler, a prince, you know, he's the it's, it's, very, it's shading very close to God. But I think the, I think the answer to uh, this verse is you should really see it as the God of this age. Uh, but it's similar to what Paul says in Philippians about the dogs whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset and earthly things. Satan is the God of this world when you view it as people have elected him as their God. They follow him as their God. And he's a usurper in the place of God, though he is not actually God or divine in any sense. In the same way that the bellies of these dogs which is their God, is not a real God. It's a false God. So you could say the false God of this age and understand it that way. Well, I think it's an important, I think it's an important phrase to retain. I personally don't think Irenaeus's interpretation is what Paul means. I think he means the God of this age. Uh, there are a couple of reasons I could get into that because I study hyperbaton, frankly, and it just doesn't fit how it works, and you don't really see it in Paul's you know, context. He just doesn't do that here. But it's important to see that for a reason. It's important that he said it that way, that you see just how powerful the draw is for those who are perishing. He is functioning as their God and has a kind of divine usurping, divine power over people as the ruler of this age. And I think, I think in the end, you, you see Paul saying this, and he's not being nasty. He's not saying, oh, well, those people are just perishing because, you know, the God of this age, you know. 
He's not being nasty. If anything, he's saying it with tears. It's grievous for him to say this. These are people who are so lost that they've turned themselves over to Satan, the murderer from the beginning, in whom there is no light, even though he wraps himself in a false light to blind the eyes of unbelievers. So Paul says this with compassion. He says, look at these people. It's grievous, it's sad, it's deeply a mournful thing to say this and to understand. They are perishing, they're dying because they're dead in transgressions of sin. The people that you encounter who may reject you as a Christian and your gospel are dead and perishing and following the God of this age. And I think that should lead us to compassion on them. I think it should lead us to look at them with pity and not hold it against them and not somehow heap scorn on them. I think it should lead us to, 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 to long for helping them. And frankly, the second point I'd have you remember is Paul is also stubborn. Paul is also dogged, and he's obsessed. So if I'm obsessed with certain things in my work, I've got a good companion here, because he's obsessed with something I'm also obsessed with, and you have to be obsessed with, and that is the gospel. That is Christ Jesus. Notice how that comes out in our passage. He is obsessed with Christ. All he has is Christ. All he has is the gospel. It comes out right there in verse 5. If in their case the God of this world is blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's the image. He's the only thing we have. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. He has Christ Jesus, and that's his gospel. The message of the free and full and powerful salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. He's obsessed with that. And we have to be obsessed with that as well. I sometimes, again, in my dogged way, repeating myself on every corner. And you, you've already heard me say it. And I'll keep saying it. All we have to offer people is the gospel. It's not eloquence. It's not wealth, it's not, you know, advice to become wealthy, it's not what all, whatever else we could offer the world, those things are meaningless in the end if we don't offer them the gospel, if we don't offer them Christ, Christ crucified. You know how he determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, and that shows up here. Why? That's where the glory of God is found. That's where blind people can see, because God uses that to open their eyes. And finally, I'd like to leave you with one more tidbit from this passage, which really struck me. It's not the only time he says that, but it was really striking. Because notice what he says in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I was a little surprised by that. You would expect him to say, and Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as his servants. Now that's true. Chapter 11, he says that overtly. And of course, he often opens his gospel or his epistles by saying, you know, Paul, apostle and slave of Christ. This is, the, you know, this word servant's a little milder. This is doulos. This is slave. He doesn't say Christ's slave here. He says, your slave for Jesus' sake. And that should be our attitude too. As well as, you know, for the people of God. But you see, these people of God that he's talking to were once perishing. And he was their slave. He viewed himself as the slave of people who are perishing to bring them the gospel. So he prepared, he worked, he labored, he prayed, and he preached the gospel because he was a slave of Christ, and that made him their slave. So bring the gospel with compassion, with conviction of its power and light in Christ because he is powerful and light-giving the image of God himself. And you've been called to be the slave of those you serve, so that on the last day, he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful slave of me. Then you'll know true freedom and joy and light. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for the glory of Christ our gospel is all we have. For ourselves, it's all we claim, O oh Lord, when we come before you, that we have Christ crucified for us, risen from the dead, exalted at your right hand, sending your spirit to give us life, opening our eyes powerfully and personally. Because of that, O oh Lord, help us to grow in our ability and our passion to preach the gospel wherever we may, to share it, to uh, live it, and to be servants, slaves of those who are perishing for your glory, for the honor of your name, in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.